Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you've turned in. This is our monthly Bible question and answer, which means we won't be in one passage. We'll sort of be jumping around. So if you have your Bible, grab it. If you didn't uh, bring one, grab one out of the hymn book holders. We won't be in one text. We'll sort of jump around to a variety of passages. Uh, so you'll need to kind of lick your fingers and turn from passage to passage and uh, see if we can just at least give some initial thoughts, though we can't usually go into a lot of detail, but at least maybe give some thoughts. Uh, the cur- first question tonight is actually uh, somewhat multifaceted. Um, my guess is that this is coming out of, I know that in uh, BSF, both on the men's side and the ladies' side, uh, both groups have been studying the book of Revelation for the last year, and so throughout the last year I've been getting a lot of questions from people as they're continuing to wrestle through things. Maybe this comes out of the same source or another study, but, uh, but someone asks, uh, where was or is the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period? So what is the role of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period? Well, um, this, and again, there's several questions here. Uh, one of them is related to 2 Thessalonians 2. The other is Revelation 7. So maybe let's start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here, Paul is clearly talking about a future event. He opens the chapter talking about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. That is most commonly referred to in our day as the rapture. And the term rapture, by the way, comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. And in that 1 Thessalonians 4 passage, where it says, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them, is uh, the Latin, Latin word there is raptura, which we get it, from which we get our English word rapture. I have no idea how a Latin word became such a source of such a popular English word, but the term rapture, of course, now has found its way not only into theological discussions, but even sort of in, in, on a pop level, popular level, by the uh, popularity of the Left Behind series, etc. So most people, even a lot of Christ, non-Christians, know about this event called the rapture. Uh, the more biblical phrase is the great gathering de- together unto Jesus in the air. And here in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, if you, we don't have time to go through it in detail, but basically what had happened is the Thessalonians had somehow come to the conclusion they had missed the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, and they were in the day of the Lord's wrath. And the reason why they believed that is because when Paul was with them, he had taught them that one of the aspects of the day of the Lord's wrath is going to be persecution. And we know that from the book of Revelation. So they started experiencing persecution. They thought, oh, then somehow we missed the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. We're being persecuted. This is the day of the Lord's wrath. And Paul says, no, 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 you can't. And by the way, what else seems to be going on here is that someone had told them that Paul had changed his position. Paul had changed his teaching, had changed his mind. And that's why he says in verse 2, Don't be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. So, so someone wrote a letter in Paul's name saying, Oh, by the way, I've changed my view. You are going to go into the great, the, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord's wrath. And they thought, okay, we're in it. And Paul writes to say, no, no, that, you can't be in it. 
There are several reasons why you can't be in it. And he talks about them in verse 3. And then he talks about the man of sin, the, the Antichrist, in verse 4. And then he says in verse 5, Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. That he is a reference to the man of sin, up in verses 3 and 4, more popularly called the Antichrist. He says, You know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Then, then, then he talks about the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist work, etc. Now, based on this, passages, many, this passage, many Christians have wrongly assumed, now we're getting to the point of where's the Holy, what's the Holy Spirit doing, doing during the tribulation? Many Christians have wrongly assumed that the Holy Spirit is going to be taken away. That's a very common and popular teaching. And in fact, many connect that with the rapture. And they say, oh, when, if the rapture is pre-tribulational, the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. And the Holy Spirit is no longer active on planet Earth during that time. But that's not what the text says. That's not what Paul says. What is happening here, what is being described, is not that the Holy Spirit is gone, but that his restraining ministry is pulled back. So it's not that he himself is gone or absent from the earth, but rather his restraining is pulled back. So does this passage, in answer to your question, teach that the Holy Spirit is not present during the tribulation? Not at all. Uh, then someone would point out Revelation chapter 7. So let's turn over there. Revelation chapter 7. This is an interesting insight as a part of the question that this uh, lady turned in. She noticed that in Revelation chapter 7, verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted them on earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And then that proceeds to happen. It says in verse 4 at the end there that there were 144,000 sealed, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, again, in wrestling through it, this lady asked the question, now hold it. I know from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that the Holy Spirit seals us today. 2 Corinthians 1 says the same thing. So here we see some angels doing sealing. So is this another indication? Maybe the Holy Spirit's gone, and now angels are doing some kind of sealing uh, work here. Well, it is clear that angels, these angels are going to do a work of sealing um, S-E-A-L-I-N-G, of course, sealing during the tribulation period. But this is not parallel with Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 says that when you hear the gospel, when you respond in faith to Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the down payment to assure us that the transaction will be completed. In other words, our salvation will be completed. It's a statement of security. But here, these 144,000 are sealed so that they don't die during the tribulation period. So again, two different things. Uh, here, this is not a parallel. This is not as if the Holy Spirit is gone, and then now the angels are doing this same kind of sealing work. So all that to say this, the passages that are often used, 2 Thessalonians 2, maybe now Revelation 7, to try to say the Holy Spirit is gone, really don't say that the Holy Spirit is gone. 
And in fact, as is pointed out in this question, uh, we do know from the very next verses, beginning down in verse 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. And these are ones who are saved out of the great tribulation. Verse 14 says that. He said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we know that during the tribulation, many people will be saved, even though the world as a whole will be anti-Christ, against Christ, and join with the anti-Christ. Still, God will continue to be redeeming Gentiles, and this is a picture of Gentiles, but also his primary focus in the tribulation is to eventually break Israel's rebellion, their stubbornness, etc. So this picture alone tells us that where's the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period? He's still working in people's hearts because no one could be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 3 says. There's none who seeks after God. So if the Holy Spirit weren't present in some way in the tribulation period working in people's hearts, no one would be saved. But we know that scores of Gentiles will be saved and scores of Jews will be saved. So all that to say this, and answer your question, where will the Holy Spirit be during the tribulation period? He will still be working to draw men and women to saving faith, but his restraining ministry will be pulled back. So you could say, will he be present during the tribulation? Yes. Will he be present in the same way as in this era? No, because his work is going to be different. For one thing, he won't be restraining, and uh, his work will, you could almost say that it will resort back to or change back to a similar type of role as in the Old Testament economy. All right, the next question says this. It seems, I love this question. I'm so glad someone asked this. It seems that very early on in church history, the, her, the church held to a sacramental view of baptism and the Eucharist. Uh, this term being used at the end of the first century by the Didache. Didache is a work, a very early first century work. Didache, which means teaching. Uh, it's one of the earliest Christian documents we have in print, in Greek. And it just gives you insight into what Christians were thinking and how they function. It's really a fascinating, it's obviously not inspired, uh, but it's, uh, it's not a book of the Bible. But it is an interesting book to read. In fact, when I was doing some doctoral work, I had to translate the Didache out of Greek. And it was, it was really fascinating to translate it and see what was going on. So the term Eucharist already being used that quickly. Not as a means of salvation, but as a means of grace being imparted to recipients. First, is this the case? And let me just say, yes, this is the case. It was early on in church history that the church, and I'm going to use this term and explain it, that the church lapsed into a sacramental view of baptism in the Eucharist. It was early on, very early on, that the church lapsed into it. And in fact, it is very much parallel to what happened with the people of Israel very early on. If you will remember, God redeemed them out of Egypt, the miracle of taking them through the, the uh, Red Sea on dry land, and they come over and they go to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes to get the Ten Commandments. He's gone too long, and what do they say? Aaron, we don't know about this Moses guy. He's supposed to get us the word of God, but he's gone too long. Make us some gods. And so Aaron says, take all the gold off. And, and then he makes these, these uh, images. Now, most people do not read the text closely. They were not trying to make false gods. Understand that. They were trying to make a representation of the true God. 
These are your gods that led you out of Egypt. So what had the children of Israel done? Right early on, they lapsed into wanting something more tangible rather than waiting for the word of God, which was how God was going to guide them. They wanted, and you remember when Moses confronted Aaron, what he had the nerve to say? Well, I just threw it in the fire and they came out. Right, come on. But that's what he said. So the people of Israel lapsed right into, not sacramentalism, but idolatry. But not the worship of false gods right away. Instead, it was the worship of the true God in the wrong way. And it's one of the reasons why God in his law said, you don't make any graven image because it's going to lead you down the wrong. Even if it's a graven image of me, which I don't have any form, basically, God said, but, but it, don't do that. It's going to take you the wrong direction. So is the, in answer to this question, is this the case? Absolutely, it's the case. If you study church history, it doesn't take long for the church to move away from the means of grace being the Word of God and prayer to something more tangible. Just like the children of Israel. We want something more tangible. So we're going to say, we're going to say that baptism is a means of grace. Uh, the Eucharist is a means of grace. We want something more tangible rather than something more spiritual, ethereal. And it happened. It's the sad reality of church history. So is this the case? Yes. How historically rooted is sacramentalism? It is very historically rooted. But it doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. Now, and, and then the little parentheses, not the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. So we're talking about something different here. And if historically Christians have viewed communion and baptism as a means of grace, that is correct. When and why did we shift to communion as a mere remembrance? Great question. And I would say this. It started, this shift started, of course, with the Reformation. Not completely, though, because if you know about the Reformation, then you know that Luther moved from in the Catholic Church to his view of, uh, the Catholic Church's view of transubstantiation to a view that is technically called consubstantiation. So transubstantiation, when the priest says his stuff, then the elements turn into the body and blood of Christ, according to Catholic teaching. Luther rejected that, so that's not biblical. But he held to consubstantiation, and con, the, the word means with. So the elements don't become the body and blood of Jesus, but Jesus is in them in a special or unique way. And Luther argued this with some of the other formers who said, no, basically, Luther, you're, you're reforming the church. You're just not willing to reform enough. You need to get away from all of that. Jesus is clearly using symbolism when he says, this is my body, because it wasn't his body. His body was right there. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So it's obvious that Jesus was talking about symbolism and remembrance. And so Luther argued with them, and he held to his view. And still in Lutheran theology to this day, the official position of the Lutheran church is consubstantiation. But some of the other reformers fought that, said, no, it's just... It's, it's just a carryover, a leftover from the Catholic Church. So in answer to the question, uh, when and why did we shift to communion as a mere remembrance? Well, it started in the Reformation, among some of those in the Reformation. And even, I'm talking about communion here, but even with baptism, you remember the Anabaptists. Anabaptist means ana, again, Baptist, to be baptized again. There were some in the Reformation said, listen, we need to get away from all of this tradition, go back to the Bible, and in the Bible, everyone who was baptized was an adult who had believed nobody, we have no clear example of infant baptism, so 
we're going to be Anabaptists, that is Baptists again. That is, you need to get baptized again, even if you were baptized as a baby, because every example of baptism is adult baptism by immersion. And they weren't a very popular wing of the Reformation, as, as popular as Luther and Calvin, but they were right on. They just said, hey, if we're going to reform the church and we say Scripture's our authority, then show me something in the Bible that supports infant baptism, which, of course, Luther and Calvin could not do because there is nothing. The only place you find it is in the white spaces. It's just not in there. So uh, that's when this, it started, and, and then ever since the Reformation, there have been segments of Christianity that said, listen, this, uh, this sacramental view that came in very early on just, just entrenched itself. The Reformation started changing it, and a lot of, of godly men and women in the Reformation renounced all of that, and they went to a believer baptism by immersion, and they went to the Lord's Supper as being a remembrance and symbolic, but it still held on in a lot of segments of Christianity, especially in those that would be technically called covenant theology. It's held on in there within covenant theology because of their view of Israel and the church. Uh, infant baptism is the norm, uh, and often this idea of a means of grace, etc. And then, so in answer to your question, when and why? Well, when, that's when it started, and why? The answer is, and I, I know how else to say it, because that's the scriptural issue. That's the, what does Scripture say? Let me ask it this way. The question is, why did we shift to communion as a mere remembrance? That is, as opposed to a means of grace. All right? Show me in the book of Romans where communion is a means of grace. Not there. Show me, let me just, show me in the book of Galatians where communion is a means of grace. Not there. What about Ephesians? It's not there. What about Philippians? It's not there. What about Colossians? Not there. What about 1 Thessalonians? Isn't there. What about 2 Thessalonians? It's not there. What about 1 Timothy? Can't find it. What about 2 Timothy? Not there. What about Titus? Isn't in there. What about Philemon? It's not there. What about Hebrews? You get the point, right? I'll stop. All right? It's just not in there. Listen, if this were so important, if communion was a means of grace, don't you think it would be throughout the New Testament? Let me turn the question around another way. What is really a means of grace in our lives? Scripture? Does, is Scripture emphasized in the book of Romans? Absolutely. What about 1 Corinthians? Yes. What about 2 Corinthians? Yes. What about Galatians? Yes. What about Ephesians? Yes. What about Colossians? Yes. Let me tell you another means of grace. Prayer. Can you find prayer in Romans? Oh, absolutely. Can you find it in 1 Corinthians? Yes. 2 Corinthians? Yes. Galatians? Ephesians? Philippians? Sure. So again, if something is really a means of grace, God is going to talk about it in the New Testament. So... To take and, and make something that is supposed to be a one-time experience, i.e. baptism, as a believer, and communion, a repeated event, however many times you do it, weekly, monthly, whatever, but to turn it into sacramentalism, you just can't defend it scripture. Now, you can go back and say, well, this is what a lot of the church has believed for 2,000 years. You're absolutely right. It's what a lot of the church has believed for almost 2,000 years. Just like you can go to Israel's history and say, you know what a lot of Israelites did for a lot of years, 2,000 years? They kept erecting idols because they weren't satisfied with the Word of God and the presence of God in the temple. They had to do it their own way. So there's an exact parallel there. So this is uh, such an important issue because this is one of the issues that sort of divides conservative Christianity. I'm not talking about liberal Christianity, conservative Christianity. The, these issues right here and... 
I hate to say it this way, but I'll say it this way. Part of it comes down to where are you going to put your authority? Are you going to put it in the history of the church or are you going to put it in Scripture? That's the bottom line. All right, next question is out of Romans chapter 8. So let's go back to Romans chapter 8. And someone is asking if there is a connection here between Mark 15, 20, which we looked at this morning, where it says they led Jesus out to crucify him. And that, of course, ties in with Isaiah saying he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a uh, lamb is silent before his shearer, so he didn't open his mouth, etc. And then there's this statement here in Romans 8, 36. uh, As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So the question is, is there a tie here between this and Jesus being led out as a lamb to slaughter, uh, and then the quote out of Isaiah, etc. Well, I, the wording is very similar, and I could see how you would make a connection. But it, and it's not that it's co- completely unrelated, but it's not addressing the same thing. Because here in Romans 8, Paul's point is this, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing we go through should ever make us question the love of God. Persecution should not. Famine, nakedness, nothing should cause us to think, oh, does God really love me? Uh, Because we should expect life to be hard. We should expect persecution. And that's why Paul here in verse 36, you can tell it's a quote. He is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting actually the Septuagint uh, of Psalm 44, 22, saying, listen, for your sake we were killed all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, this is just the lot in life for the people of God. They're persecuted. So don't be surprised when you're persecuted. And in this context, don't let that cause you to question the love of God when you're persecuted. Because that's just what God's people face. So is there a tie between Romans 8, 36 Jesus being led out, and then the Isaiah quote of him being led as a lamb to the slaughter. Not really, other than, yes, Jesus as the ultimate child of God, the Son of God, was led to be slaughtered. And we, as God's people, are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But they're not really addressing the exact same thing. All right, next question says this. Pastor Brian, how can a man who has repented accepted or received Christ and obeys the best of man's, to the best of man's ability, still not be saved? Is there a possibility that he is not of the elect? Well, two questions. Let me answer the first one. How can a man who has repented, received Christ, and obeys the best of man's ability still not be saved? Well, that is uh, a contradiction in terms. Now, I'm not sure if you are talking about someone who seems to have repented, like Judas. You know, he took the money back and threw it in the temple. He didn't really repent, but he he was sorry that he had betrayed innocent blood, but he wasn't willing to turn back to Christ. So I'm not sure what you're asking, because let me just turn around and say it this way. Any man who has truly repented, received Christ, and thus has been changed so that he obeys the Lord, is saved. Anyone who repents and trusts in Christ, is saved. So I'm not sure what scenario you're thinking of that someone isn't saved, unless, again, you are thinking of someone who is a Judas. But please understand, Jesus could not have been more clear throughout the gospel so that we wouldn't confuse this. Judas never was saved. He never was real. He never was genuine. So is it possible for someone to have, you know, some emotional 
response, a reaction that looks like repentance, and someone claimed to have received Christ and claimed to be, begin following Him and not be saved? Absolutely. That's a possibility. Sadly, there are far too many of those types of scenarios. Why John says in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they were, remained with us, but they went out that it might be manifest that none of them were of us. So it's the sad history of, of uh, Christianity is people who seem to have some kind of emotional reaction. They do have an emotional reaction, and it seems to be repentance. They seem to turn to Christ. But of course, we can't see the heart. That's the thing. We don't ever know if that's real. So your second question, is there a possibility that he is not of the elect? No, because Jesus said, whosoever wills, let him come. So you don't have to try to figure out the doctrine of election before you repent and turn to Christ. You just come. Whosoever will may come. So no, don't put it off on election. Well, this guy seemed to be real, but he eventually just totally walked away. He's obviously not real. That must mean that he's not elect. Don't put it on the doctrine of election. Put it on the person's own heart. He never really repented and trusted Christ because anyone who does is truly saved. All right, next question is this. Uh, I read a question in a study on Hebrews, and here's a, a quote. In God's infinite wisdom, he surely could have chosen a different way to redeem us. Why do you think he chose becoming a man and dying as a sacrifice? Now, that's the quote from the study. My question is, could he have chosen a different way? P.S. You could answer the other question also. So the first question that's in the quote, uh, why do you think he chose becoming a man and dying as a sacrifice? The answer is because there wasn't any other way. There's, there are two statements in Scripture that just completely slam the door on that issue. One is, the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's a definitive dogmatic statement. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But in that same context, the writer of Hebrews says, but it's clear that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So if the only way to take away sin is through the shedding of blood, and animal sacrifices can't do it, there's only one option. And that is God, the God-man, the Son of God, to do it. So could he have chosen a different way? No. The other verse in the Bible that just, just slams the door on that possibility is the very thing that Jesus said in the garden. Father, if there is another way, I'm paraphrasing here, but if there's another way, let's do it that way. And obviously, there was no other way because it went through, according to plan, where God became, or God the Son became sin for us. So, I, I, you know, I don't want to, I always hesitate criticizing or disagreeing with a study that someone's read, especially if it's good material or whatever, but in God's infinite wisdom, he surely could have chosen a different way to redeem us. Well, give me chapter and verse on that. Don't just make that statement. Uh, Why do you think he chose becoming a man and dying as a sacrifice? Because it, it was the only way. And so, no, I would disagree with that first statement. He could have chosen a different way. He could not have chosen a different way. It was the only way for, for, for redemption to be provided. All right, next question. Um, let's turn to Isaiah 43 for this one. Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 
Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place. So here's the question. It's, an, it's another great one. These are super questions this, this evening. Um, here's the question. Are the verses that are frequently quoted from the Old Testament prophets, which are meant for the nation of Israel, equal, equally applicable to the individual believer today? For example, Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. And the reason I didn't have you turn to the other one, because you all know it, Jeremiah 29, 11, You know the thoughts that I have for you, the plans I have for you for good and not for evil, etc., you see it all over the place on plaques and etc. So is it appropriate to use these verses on a, say, on a card for encouragement to another believer? Uh, we want to rightly divide the word of truth. And then the individuals sign their name. Well, and I commend you for wanting to do that. Uh, and I would say this. Uh, is it, uh, here's your question. Are the verses uh, from the Old Testament prophets which are meant for the nation of Israel, that's a very good insight, important statement, equally applicable to the individual believer today? And I would say no. If you take the word equally out, then I could go with it. Are they applicable to the believer today? Yes. Do they apply to us? Yes, because God's love for his people Israel is the same as his love for the church. God's care for his people Israel, God's care for the church, but they are not equally applicable. Let me just give you one example right out of this text. End of verse 2. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. How many Christians were burned at the stake under Roman rule in the first century? Countless. So, why could a Christian not have claimed this verse and escaped being burned at the stake? Because this verse isn't specifically, or your term, equally applicable to the Christian today. It's the mistake that so many people make with the Old Testament. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to take the Old Testament from you. Not at all. I just want us to do what these individuals who asked this question said. We want to rightly divide the word of truth. You know, there are promises in the Old Testament to the people of God that if you obey me, I will always give you rain for your crops. Can you claim that as a Christian farmer today? You can try, but there's no guarantee you're going to get rain when your crops need it. You know what? You may need to irrigate. You don't need to irrigate under the Old Testament economy because God always promised rain. So are these equally applicable? No, but they are applicable. And here's how we know that. Because the writer of Hebrews says this. He says in Hebrews 13, he says, let your manner of life be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, therefore I will not fear what men will do to me. Here's the fascinating thing about that quote. Where is it? Well, you don't really even have that exact quote. But what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's taking all these kinds of verses from the Old Testament saying, you know what? We can be confident that God is with us because there are all these promises that God will be with his people. So can you take the promises in the Old Testament that God will be with his people? Yes. Can you take every detail about it like you won't, you won't be burned in the fire? No. 
You could take the principle. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know, know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good, to prosper you, etc. Can you take that verse for today? Yes, if you take the principle that God loves his people, and you could almost say it's like a Romans 8, 28, God will cause all things to work together for good. That doesn't mean that everything turns out good. God will use it for good. God's plans for us are for good. But if you take it, to mean, like it was in Jeremiah 29 in the context, that nothing bad will ever happen to you, let me tell you, you are setting yourself up for great disappointment. Because let me guarantee you one thing, beloved, and as I've told you many times in the past, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I work for a nonprofit organization, but you will have problems in this life. And if you want to quote Jeremiah 29, 11 to say you're not going to have problems in life, you're setting yourself up for, for disappointment. I talked with a lady, she's here tonight, uh, recently she called about some dear friends of hers whose daughter was dying of cancer and it was a horrible kind of cancer, literally rotting her face away and the parents understandably didn't want their daughter to die, but they kept saying, listen, God is going to heal her. Even as her face was rotting away, God is going to heal her, God, and then she died. And this dear lady in our church was like, how can I help my friends? Because they're setting themselves up for huge disappointment. And you know what happens when Christians do that? Then they blame God. God, you're not true to your promises. No, you don't. It's that you're misreading the promises. God doesn't promise that your daughter won't die of cancer. You can't find a verse in the Bible that says that. God doesn't promise that your spouse won't leave you. God doesn't promise that, just fill in the blank. God doesn't promise that. And if you think he does, and it happens in your life, you set yourself up for major disappointment, and you think, God doesn't keep his word. No, it's just that you're not rightly dividing his word. All right, next question says this. In Mark 14, 24, as Jesus was instituting communion, he said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Then in John 19, Jesus received sour wine right before he died. How can this be resolved? So the person is wondering, okay, in Mark 14, 24, Jesus seems to say, I'm not going to drink any more wine. But in John 19, he drinks wine, enough wine to, to uh, moisten his mouth so he can utter his final words in death. Well, the key is to understand, I appreciate what you said here, as Jesus was instituting communion. That's the key to understanding what Jesus was saying in Mark 14. Because Jesus instituted communion as he was celebrating Passover. And if you know Passover, there are four cups throughout the Passover celebration. Each one has a different name. The cup of sanctification, the cup of instruction, the cup of redemption or salvation, etc., the cup of consummation. So what seems to be happening is Jesus went through all three of those in the Passover celebration. And as a part of that, he instituted communion, but he did not drink the fourth cup. He told his disciples to do it, but he said, I'm not going to drink it until I do so anew in the kingdom, when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So it wasn't so much that Jesus was saying, I'll never taste wine again, but rather what he was saying is, I'm not going to drink the cup of consummation. I'm not going to do this until the consummation has taken place, until the, the, the plan has finally been consummated for me to bring in the kingdom, and then I'll drink it. So you need to take the statement in the context, not as some kind of categorical statement outside of its context. That's what Jesus was saying. And so he's going to wait until the kingdom to drink that fourth cup. All right, next question. Over to Revelation chapter 20. 
Revelation chapter 20. And the question is this. Recently I was told that Old Testament saints would not be resurrected until at the end of the millennial kingdom. I've always thought that they would be part of the pre-trib rapture. Please comment. Okay, you ready for the comment? It's neither. All right? It's neither at the end of the millennial kingdom or it's neither part of the pre-trib rapture. Because according to Revelation chapter 20, it says this. It says that Jesus comes back at the end of 19, and right when he comes back, he binds Satan. That's the first part of chapter 20. And then that inaugurates the kingdom. And he says, verse 4, I saw thrones. They sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the, their witness to Jesus, the word of God, etc., uh, and who had not worshipped the beast's image and not received his mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So look at what the text says. It says the tribulation saints, and according to Daniel 12, the Old Testament saints will be raised at the second coming of Jesus. All the lost of all the ages will not be resurrected until at the end of the thousand years. But those who are raised, they lived and reigned with Christ, those... Old Testament saints and tribulation saints at the, at the second coming prior to the millennial kingdom, they are a part of the first resurrection. See that at the end of the verse? And then verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Now, here's the interesting thing. The first resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Paul says, I think it's around verse 23, 1 Corinthians 15, that the first resurrection, there will be a resurrection, but each in his own order. So let me say it this way. The first resurrection is the good one. The second resurrection is the bad one. The first resurrection, each in his own order. That is, there are phases to it. Second resurrection, it's all at once. First resurrection unto life. Second resurrection unto damnation. The first resurrection, each in his own order. Christ is actually part of the first resurrection. The, you could even probably say those saints that were raised in connection with Jesus' resurrection. You remember that verse, that obscure verse in Matthew that, you know, they, they, they were raised and coming out of the tombs, they went into Jerusalem and they talked to people. So that's part of the first resurrection. First Thessalonians 4, uh, the dead in Christ, or well, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's part of the first resurrection. And here, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints at the second coming to go into the kingdom, all of that's part of the first resurrection because it's the good one. Jesus, the saints in Jerusalem in the first century, church saints, tribulation saints, and Old Testament saints to go into the kingdom. Now you say, well, why this difference? Because there are different promises. What is our hope as believers? What is our hope? Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God, Savior Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope is for the Lord to take us to be with him in heaven. That's not the hope of Old Testament saints. Read it. Their hope is the kingdom. That's why in Daniel 12, Daniel was promised he'll be raised to go into the kingdom. The hope of Old Testament saints is the kingdom. So they'll be raised at the second coming along with the tribulation saints for their hope, which is the kingdom. So... You were told Old Testament saints would not be re resurrected until at the end of the millennial kingdom. Not true. They're raised at the beginning of it. I've always thought they'd be part of the pre-trib rapture. 
Don't think so. It's the church saints, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, who are caught up together with the Lord wherever you place that, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, etc. Our last question is, and I don't know if this individual is even here tonight because they turned in this question right after Bible Q&A last month, so it's been almost a month. Uh, it's actually sort of a sad question. Uh, I hope the individual's here tonight, but it says this, I grew up in this church and appreciate the teaching and the people here very much. I'm in college now, and I realize I don't really have a strong desire to focus on my relationship with the Lord. Maybe it's just that I did all the church things for so long. I'm not sure I see the point. I feel this isn't right, but I'm having a hard time changing. Is it okay if I just put it off for a while? How do I find the motivation when I don't really see the importance day to day? You know, as I read that question, I couldn't help but think about the book of Hebrews because it was written to a group of Christians who were almost saying basically the same thing. They were saying, you know, we're being persecuted because we're Christians. We don't like that. We weren't being persecuted uh, as Jews under Judaism. So is it okay if we just sort of go back under Judaism and sort of bide our time? And then once the persecution passes, we'll come back to Jesus. And then we'll just pick it up sort of when we are motivated or when we feel like it. Interesting that the, the writer of Hebrews seeks to motivate those Christians in two ways. One way he says this, Jesus is so much better. That's one of the key words in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is so much better. In that case, so much better than the old covenant, Aaron, the law. Jesus is so much better than anything you could pursue. So if you're here tonight, I will say this to you. Jesus is so much better than anything you can pursue in life. Whatever has caught your attention so that you're not motivated, Jesus is so much better. But here's the other way the writer of Hebrews sought to motivate those Hebrew Christians who wanted to sort of check out and just sort of put it on hold. He said, if you do that, you need to understand the danger you put yourself in because you put yourself under the judgment of God. Now, again, specifically in that case, A.D. 70 was coming, and you go back into Judaism, and God's judgment on Judaism came in A.D. 70. Here's the great part of the story. We find from three other writers post-New Testament era who say that the people in Hebrews received the letter, they heard the exhortation, and instead of going back into Judaism, they renounced it once and for all, and they chose to stay true to Christ. So when the war with the Romans broke out, 1.1 million Jews died in that war, but Jewish Christians who renounced Judaism, made the break, and pursued Jesus, said, hey, here coming the Romans in Jer to Jerusalem. We don't have any connection to Jerusalem. They left Jerusalem, went across the east side of the Jordan, and waited out the war, and not a one of them lost their lives. Now, I can't tell you that if you don't follow Jesus wholeheartedly, you're going to lose your life soon. I don't know that. God in his mercy may not do that. God may do that. I, God is sovereign. He does what he does. Uh, shall not the judge of the earth do right? But I just want to motivate you the way the writer of Hebrews does by saying Jesus is so much better than anything that's caught your eye. And if you choose not to follow him wholeheartedly and you just want to play, sort of, you know, put it off, play games, be lukewarm, remember what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, it makes me sick and I want to spit you out of my mouth. It's a pretty drastic statement. So, on the positive side, Jesus is way better. On the negative side, you choose not to. I can't tell you how God will react to that or respond to that, but you put yourself in a scary position because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And sometimes his chastening is severe. So I would exhort you to wholeheartedly choose to pursue Christ.
Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you for a great Lord's Day this morning, tonight, the tremendous songs that we've been able to sing together as your people to lift our praises to you and a chance to look at your word uh, this morning, the, the crucifixion, how that should captivate us and capture our attention. And then also to look at these issues tonight, of course, no one theme, a variety of themes, uh, just because of the nature of the, the question and answer, but hopefully our hearts have been stirred by your word. Hopefully our uh, minds have been sharpened by considering your word. And uh, even as we think about this last question, Father, uh, we want to acknowledge that in and of ourselves, uh, even as your people, those who have been redeemed by you, we, we can very easily uh, lose heart or we can very easily uh, lose motivation and get focused on the wrong thing. So stir our hearts. Keep us as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty. May we be like our Savior, and may we endure, and may we look unto Jesus as we're exhorted to do in Hebrews 12. We pray in his name. Amen.